It's good to be with you, church. My name is Halim Sah. I serve as one of the pastors and elders here at the Stone. If you've been coming for a while, you know that we've been working our way through the book of 1 Peter. We're in chapter 5 today, the very last chapter, so we're almost done. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 7 today. 1 Peter is an incredible letter written by the apostle Peter. And the primary thing that he's been talking to us about in his letter has been about suffering, right? Over and over and over again, he's been talking to us about the suffering that we're going to go through, us being persecuted, being insulted for the name of Jesus. Why? Why? Because this has always been the promise of Jesus. This has always been the promise of the scriptures that if you choose to live a godly life in this world, if you choose to pattern your life according to what this book has to say, not what the world has to say, that you will be persecuted. Jesus said, if the world hated me, it's going to hate you. And in many ways, this is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to follow Jesus. Many of us may not feel it, perhaps, being Christians in America today, but in many ways, this is what it means. This is what it has always meant to be a Christian. Not health and wealth, but suffering. Suffering. Now make no mistake, it's suffering that leads to glory, but it's not just glory. It's suffering that leads to glory. We're called to share in the fellowship of the sufferings of Jesus. And if you were there, imagine it, back in the first century. First century Christians, and you've received this letter from Peter and you're reading and you're reading about the suffering and the persecution that's going to come your way, well, how would you feel? How would you feel? The Christians who were the first readers of Peter's letter, history tells us that soon after getting this letter, soon after getting this word, they would experience some of the greatest suffering, some of the greatest oppression and torment that perhaps Christians would ever face in human history under the tyranny of Nero. And have you ever sat down and truly counted the cost of following Jesus? Have you ever done that? You do know that we're signing up to follow somebody who the world hated so much that they hung up on a cross to die, right? Maybe there's another hero, another Nero around the corner of our history. Maybe. And if there is, will you be ready for it? You won't be without First Peter. To say that Christians back then and as we as Christians today might feel some level of anxiety about following Jesus after hearing all the promises, their promises of suffering and persecution, well, that would be an understatement. You know, just simply being human beings in this world, I'm not talking about being a Christian, just living as human beings in this world, we face all sorts of anxieties, right? Anxieties like, what am I gonna do with my life? Any of you facing that anxiety? What am I gonna do with my life? Or the anxieties that come with, I'm single, been single for a long time now, will I ever be married? Will I ever have a family? Or anxieties that come with, I'm married, I have a family, how am I gonna take care of this family? How am I gonna pay all the bills? Will I be able to parent in such a way that I don't mess up my kids? Anxieties that come from getting old. Anxieties that come from getting sick. Anxieties that come from having to make tough, tough decisions in life, and we can go on and on. So you see, we have all these regular, everyday life, every human being kinds of anxieties, but on top of that, 
because we're Christians, because we've chosen to follow Jesus in this world, there are all sorts of other anxieties that we're going to have to face as Christians. Anxieties like God's calling me to be more bold in my faith and start sharing the gospel at work. Well, what are people gonna think of me? Will I be fired, right? Or God is calling me to be a missionary overseas. Am I gonna be able to get the training that I need? Will I be ready? Will I be able to raise all the support that I need? Am I gonna be safe? Will my family be safe? Will our lives be threatened, right? These are some of the threats that our brothers and sisters in Christ from this church are facing right now amongst unreached people groups. Or anxieties that come from God is calling me to confess a deep sin to my wife, to my husband. Will they understand? Will they be able to forgive? The Christian life is filled with commands, things to do, things to stop doing, things to change. And some of you, you're anxious today, not because you don't know what God wants you to do, but you know exactly what God wants you to do and you're just not doing it because of the anxieties of life and because of the anxieties that come with following Jesus. This is why so many of us are walking around with a sinking feeling in our gut. This is why when you look at your life, when you assess your life, you see that you're always feeling a little agitated. You're always feeling a little bit nervous, always sort of upset, always restless. You're always a little bit scared. Why? It's called anxiety. It's called anxiety. And if this anxiety just sits on you for any length of time, it'll produce physical ramifications. You'll get ulcers, you'll get high blood pressure, you'll get sleepless nights, and it'll have spiritual ramifications as well. You'll lose the taste and the feel and the sight of God in your soul. The things that used to stir you, the things that used to stir you, the things that used to make your soul glad, the things that used to make you feel safe and secure in God, they no longer resonate. You guys going through this? Things that used to stir you, they no longer resonate. If anxiety stays on you and if it's left undealt with, you'll lose the sense of God. Not necessarily your belief in God, but you'll lose the feel of God. You'll lose his, the sense of his care for you. And that's what anxiety is at the end of the day, feeling like God doesn't care, that God doesn't care for you. And this is why anxiety is so dangerous because it makes you forget the most basic and the most fundamental precious truths of the gospel, which is what? He does care. He cares about you. He loves you so much that he sent his son for you, right? Anxiety makes us forget precious truths. So let's go to the text today. First Peter chapter five, verses six through seven. It says this. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Because he cares for you. Notice here from the outset that Peter doesn't say, hey, Christians, if you have anxieties, cast it on God. It's not what he says, right? He assumes that you have anxieties. He assumes that our lives are filled with anxieties. And so we're gonna be talking about anxiety today and we're gonna be looking at 1 Peter and also we're gonna be jumping around a little bit to see that anxiety is something that God acknowledges as not only a universal human experience but a deeply Christian one as well. 
deeply Christian experience, and he's showing us all throughout the Bible what to do with it, how to deal with it, how to battle it, how to sever the root and the power of anxiety in our lives. And so let's ask three questions. Number one, what is the root of anxiety? What is the root of anxiety? Number two, why do we fall into anxiety? Why do we fall into anxiety? And number three, how do we battle anxiety? How do we battle anxiety? So first, what is the root of anxiety? First Peter chapter five, look at verse six. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, it says. Peter tells us in verse six, humble yourself. Well, how do you do that? Verse seven tells us, by casting all your anxieties on him. Notice he doesn't say, humble yourself and cast all your anxieties on God. He says, humble yourselves, casting your anxieties on God. Peter is telling us how to do it, how to humble yourself. In other words, he's saying that to have and to maintain and to hold on to our anxieties is pride. That's what he's saying. It may sound like a strange thought, but this is what Peter is showing us. He's showing us that the root of anxiety is pride. But how can that be? Anxiety doesn't feel like pride, does it? Being anxious, worrying, being afraid, having sleepless nights. Well, those don't feel like puffed up, prideful things to feel, right? They seem like humble, even lowly things to feel. But that's the danger of anxiety. It's pride that hides itself as humility. Anxiety is rooted in pride because anxiety reveals that we're trying to place ourselves in God's seat. Anxiety reveals that we're trying to take God's place. It reveals our distrust for him and his ways. It reveals our fears that he's going to get it all wrong. That our God, he's in charge, but that he's gonna get it all wrong. Let me show you this in Matthew chapter six. In Matthew six, we have a famous passage of Jesus teaching on anxiety. Verse 25, he says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. And so we already get a glimpse here, whatever it is that you're anxious about, whatever it is that you're worried about, What you're saying is, the lie that you're telling yourself is, this is what life is all about, right? That's what you're saying. Whatever it is you're anxious about, you're saying, this is what life is all about. And what Jesus is saying is, don't you see, life is more than about that. It's about more than that. Verse 32 says, for the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Jesus says, everybody else is running after all these things. But your heavenly father, what? Your heavenly father knows, he says. Jesus says your heavenly father knows. And so look at it like this. If you're worried today, if you have anxiety today, whatever it is, whatever you're worried about today, the premise behind your worry, the reason why you're worrying is because you're saying that you know, that you know. You're saying you know how history has to go. You're saying it must happen this way. It can't happen any other way. You're saying it has to happen this way. You're saying you know exactly what has to happen for you to be happy. You're saying you know exactly what has to happen for things to go well. And the reason why you're anxious and worrying is because you're afraid that God's gonna get it wrong. You're trying to take God's place, don't you see? Pastor Tim Keller in New York City. I learned a lot from his sermons on anxiety this week and I'll be sharing some of those things today. He said that God would give you only what you would have asked for 
if you knew what he knows. He said, God would give you only what you would have asked for if you knew what he knows. In other words, we ask God for all sorts of things, right? And sometimes we don't get it, and so we think, God, don't you love me? Don't you care? But the premise behind that argument is that you know, right? That you know what you need, that you know what's best for you, that you know how life works best. But Jesus is saying you don't know. God knows 10 million other data points that you have no idea about. And don't you see that if you knew what he knows, if you knew the 10 million data points, that you would be asking for exactly what he's giving you. You wouldn't be asking for anything different because if you knew what he knows, you would be able to see that God is giving you right now exactly what you need, exactly what's actually best for you. And so Pastor Tim Keller says that anxiety is at the end of the day fearing that God's gonna get it wrong. Anxiety is fearing that God's gonna get it wrong and bitterness is believing that God did get it wrong, right? Some of us are bitter today. Why? Because we believe God got it wrong. And so anxiety is rooted in the pride of fearing that God will get it wrong. It's rooted in the pride that says, I know he doesn't know. It's rooted in the pride that says, if I were in charge, if I had all the power, I'd get it right. Now let's ask the second question. Why do we fall into anxiety? Paul in Philippians 4, 6 tells us, Don't be anxious about anything. Don't be anxious about anything. Why does he say that? He says that because we are people who worry and are anxious about everything, right? You send a text to somebody and you don't get a response back in 2.5 seconds. And so you're thinking, oh, are they mad at me? Are we not friends anymore, right? Your child gets a B in math and so you're thinking, oh, my kid's not a genius? They're gonna flunk out of school and live in a band down by the river, right? Or you get a headache and so you start looking at WebMD and for some reason you're just not satisfied until it tells you what? That it's brain tumor, right? We worry and are anxious about anything and everything, all sorts of things that likely will never happen, that likely are not true. And so if you go to Barnes and Noble and go to the section on anxiety, essentially this is what all those books will tell you. It'll tell you that the things that you're worried about They'll likely never happen. And so what a waste of time it is to worry about those things that will never happen and instead visualize on a future that you want to happen and focus on that. And so the world is saying we fall into anxiety because we dwell on our worst case scenarios. And its solution is, well, don't do that. Dwell on your best case scenarios. And there may be some truth to that. But mostly what I personally found is that that solution really doesn't work in the midst of anxiety especially. And my wife, Angela, she's given me the permission to share this story. For the 20 years or so that I've known her, she's always been a bit of a worrier. She worries and has anxiety about all sorts of things and it's really never been a big deal. We, we talk about it and, and she, she holds on to, to truth and she battles it and she gets over anxieties and worries. But in the last two, three months or so, her anxiety has just gone to a whole nother level whole another level to the point where she, her heart rate is going up and blood pressure is shooting up and when it gets really bad, she feels like she's having a heart attack. And so as a husband, it just makes me feel absolutely helpless. And 
after she calms down a little bit, because I never want to see her have another anxiety attack, you know, I try to talk with her. Angela, what, what are the things that you're anxious about? What are the things that you're worried about? And we try to talk through it. And because I'm a loving husband, because I'm a caring pastor, I try to offer her the best possible solution that I could ever think of. And I say, Angela, well, just, just stop it. <laughs> That's the best thing I could think. Angela, just why? Just stop worrying about all those things that will likely never happen, right? And so her world is thick. She's all better now. Um, <laughs> no, it hasn't worked one time. She looks at me like, I hope you pastor other people better than this. <laughs> In Psalm 27, we have a look into how King David is fighting against his anxieties. Psalm 27, verse 1, it says, The Lord is my light and my salvation of whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Verse three, though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. And so the world thinks that the reason why people fall into anxiety is because we worry about all sorts of things that may never happen, and so the solution is, well, just stop doing that. But is that what David is doing? Is that what David is doing? Look at verse three. Though an army encamp against me. It says, though war arise against me. He doesn't say an army has encamped against me. He doesn't say war has risen against him. He says, even if it did, even if it did. So what is David doing? David is doing the very opposite of what all the self-help books would tell us to do about anxiety. David is imagining the worst case scenario. Later on in verse 10, he says, though my father and mother forsake me. Now there's no indication that David's father and mother actually did that, but his whole point is this, even if they did, even if all of his worst nightmares came true, David says, my heart shall not fear. He says, yet I will be confident. He says, yet the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? He says, he is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? So you see, we fall into anxiety not because we're needlessly worrying about our worst case scenarios. We fall into anxiety because we don't have a view of God that enables us to face our worst case scenarios. We don't have a category for how we're gonna deal with life if the thing that you fear most happens. What do you fear most? What do you fear most? And what if it happens? Do you have a category for how you're gonna be able to deal with life? Because we do live in a world where worst case scenarios happen. We do live in a world where you're not just being paranoid for thinking that your friend secretly doesn't like you. They may very well not like you, right? <laughs> we do live in a world where your child may flunk out of school. They may fall into the wrong crowd. They may walk away from Jesus. That may happen. We do live in a world where a WebMD may be correct. It may actually be cancer. Think about Job. After all of his kids are killed, can you imagine that day? We read it just as a story, but it happened. After all of his kids are killed and all of his wealth is destroyed and stolen all in one day, he says, what I have feared has happened to me. 
Which means what? He thought about this day. It was a fear. He says, what I have dreaded has come upon me. We live in a world where we fear what we fear most and what we dread most can and do happen. And so the solution to our anxiety problem can't simply be, well, just don't think about your worst case scenarios. You have to have a view of God that enables you to face your worst nightmares. You have to have such a view of God that you're able to say, even though my friend betrays me, even though my child fails me, even though sickness claims me, Yet my heart shall not fear. Yet I will be confident. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We have to have a view of God like that. Which leads us to the last question. Well, how do we get this kind of view of God? How do we battle anxiety in this way? We'll spend the bulk of our time here. David shows us how in the next verse. He says in verse four, one thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Why is David able in the face of his greatest nightmares, the worst case scenarios of his life, be unshakable in God? Why is he able? Because look at David's prayer in verse four. Look at what he's after. He says, there's only one thing that I'm after, one thing, that's God, to dwell in your presence, to gaze upon your beauty, God. David is revealing to us the secret to living a life free from anxiety. He's saying, if God becomes my one thing, if my one greatest desire and joy is being in his presence and having him to be the source of all of my satisfactions, then I'm invincible. That's what he's saying. Then I'm safe. Then I'm fearless if God is my one thing. St. Augustine in his classic work called Confessions explains that sin is having disordered loves. He says that sin isn't just going around doing bad things, but that it's when we have good things ordered in the wrong way. And so God has given us many good things in our lives, good things that we love and cherish and desire, good gift of of a marriage, good gift of friendships and children, the good gift of a career, the good gift of provisions like food and drink and clothing and a home. But when the good things become the one thing, that's when our loves become disordered. When good things become the one thing, then that thing becomes the thing that we seek, the thing that, bec- that we gaze upon for its beauty, and we start saying, unless I have this, then I just can't be happy. If I lose this, then my life will fall apart. And that's where anxiety comes from. When the good things that has become your one thing gets threatened. That's where anxiety comes from. If your boyfriend or girlfriend breaks up with you and your life falls apart, Perhaps your boyfriend or girlfriend, your desire for marriage has become your one thing, right? If you get a demotion at work and your boss disapproves of your work and you fall into depression, well, perhaps it's because success and performing, getting men's praise has become your one thing. If your son or daughter isn't doing well at school, if they're being bullied, if they're not doing well academically and your life falls to pieces, then perhaps your child has become your one thing. And so anxiety is what comes into our lives when the good thing that has become our one thing, it gets threatened. And so do you see what David is saying? He's saying, God, if you're my one thing, 
If you're my one thing, then that's when I can be unshakable in this world no matter what happens. Why? Because every other good thing in your life, it's vulnerable, right? It's vulnerable. They can be threatened. They can be ill-treated. They can be taken away. But nothing and no one can take God from you. That's why David is saying this. This is why Paul says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who's going to separate the Christian from God? No one. Nothing, he says, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. He says nothing. He says, I am sure of this. I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so do you see why David is saying what he's saying? If my one thing is God, and if no one and nothing can separate the Christian from God, then I'm unshakable. Then I'm invincible. God is the only one weighty enough, powerful enough to bear the burden of being your one thing. And so who is he? Who is God that he should be worthy of being our one thing? Seems like a blasphemous thing to ask, but let's ask it. Who is he that he should be our greatest desire, our greatest source of satisfaction? Why should we say, God, unless I have you, I won't be happy? Why should we say, God, unless I have you, my life will fall apart? Why should we run to him with all of our anxieties? Why should we run to him with all of our fears and worries? Let's go back to 1 Peter. He tells us two critical things about God that makes him worthy says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So what does he tell us? Do you see it? He tells us that our God is mighty, right? He's mighty. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. And what else? That not only is he mighty, but that he cares. He cares. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He's worthy because he's both mighty and he cares. Him being both is absolutely critical. You see, because if he was only mighty, only mighty but not caring, imagine if we had that God. If he was powerful only, controlled all things only, but didn't give a rip about us, could we have any confidence in going to him? Could you trust him with your whole life? No, because you would have absolutely no confidence that he would use his power, that he would use his might for your good. But on the other hand, if he was only caring, he loved you, cared for you, but not mighty. If he was crazy about you and cherished you, but he wasn't mighty enough, powerful enough to control all things, could we fully trust in him and count on him? No, Because he may love you and care for you and only want the best things for you, but with certain things he would say, you know, that's just outside of my control. He may love you, but he might say, you know what, I just don't have the power to do that. The reason why he's worthy enough to be our one thing is because he's both, and many of us, we can trace our anxieties to the fact that we're not living as if he's both, right? What are you anxious about? In the midst of your anxiety, ask yourself this. What am I doubting right now? Am I doubting that he's powerful? Or am I doubting that he cares? Because it's usually the one or the other. Some of you are anxious right now, not because you think 
you don't think God cares for you. You do believe God loves you, but you're anxious because you don't believe God is mighty enough in his power to actually be in control over all things. You're anxious and you're worrying because you're thinking, well, perhaps God has nothing to do with that. You're anxious because you're saying maybe God can't do anything about that. And to live in a world where there are realms and domains where God is not in charge is a frightening world to live in. Of course you have anxiety. And others of you right now, you're not anxious because you don't think he has the power. You do believe he has the power. That's why you're upset. You're saying, God, I know you have the power to change this. I know you have the power to give me this. So why aren't you doing it? Why aren't you giving it to me? You're not doubting his power. What are you doubting? You're doubting his care. You're doubting his care. You're anxious because you're saying, God, don't you care? And you may be thinking that you believe God is mighty in power, okay? You may believe that he is mighty in power, but do you believe that he is mighty in wisdom as well? Mighty in wisdom. Sure, he has the power to give you what you want right now, but perhaps he also has the wisdom to know that what you're asking for would actually harm you. Or perhaps he has the wisdom to know that right now is not the right time to give it to you. Peter says God will exalt you at the proper time. He has the wisdom to know when is the proper time for all things. And so does all of this mean that we just need to shut up about it? Does all of this mean that if we ask God for anything, right, if there's any sort of heart of complaint, then that we're not trusting him? No, not at all. Otherwise, Peter wouldn't say, cast all your anxieties upon him. When Peter says, cast all your anxieties upon God, what does that mean? How do we do that? He's telling us to pray. He's telling us to pray. That's how we cast all our anxieties on him. That's what Paul tells us in Philippians 4, 6. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Paul tells us to pray about everything, everything that you're worried about, everything that you're anxious about. Tell God about it in prayer. Tell him. By prayer and supplication, he says. What does that mean? He's saying ask him. That's what supplication means. He said ask him for all the things that you want him to do for you. Ask him for all sorts of things that you think you need. And some of you are saying, well, I do that already. I, I pray. I tell him my problems. I ask him for all the things. But I'm still anxious. Well, here's the critical part. With thanksgiving, he says. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Well, what does that mean? How do we ask God for something while already being thankful for it? How do you ask God for something while already being thankful? You do it like this. You're saying, God, here are all my requests. Here are all my problems, and here are all my requests, but you're saying, God, and whatever you do in response to this request, I know will be good, and so I already thank you for it. That's what you're doing. You're saying, God, if I'm asking you for something which you do want for me, but just right now, well, I thank you for that. I thank you that your timing is perfect. That's how you do it. You're saying, God, if you give me the opposite of what I'm asking for, well, I thank you for that because while I don't know what's ultimately best for me, I know that you do, and so I already thank you for it. Trusting him does not mean prayerlessness. Some of us were prayerless. Why don't you pray, right? And you say, well, because I just trust him. I just trust whatever he's going to do. 
Trusting him does not mean prayerlessness. Trusting him means that we're free to pray all the time about, ask, about everything, asking him to do all sorts of things and not keeping our thanksgiving hostage and saying, God, unless you give it to me, unless you do what I'm asking, I'm gonna withhold my thanksgiving. But it's saying, God, because I know you're all powerful and because I know you care, because I know you're mighty in power, because I know you're mighty in wisdom, I'm gonna ask, I'm gonna pray, right? But I'm gonna already offer you my thanks because I know that whatever you do in response to all my requests, I know that it will be good. But still, how can I be sure, you may ask? How can I be sure that he's worthy of being my one thing. Him, God being your one thing, that's a huge ask, right? It's, a, it's an ask that's gonna dominate your life. How is he, how can we be sure that he is worthy? How can we be sure that he is mighty and that he cares? The only way to be sure is by going to the cross. The only way to be sure is by looking at the cross. Because when we look at the cross, we see that he had the power, he had the might, right? But what did he do with it? He used all of his power, all of his might, not to take but to give, not to be served, but to serve. He had all the power to crush, didn't he? He had all the power to crush us because of our sins, but instead, he was crushed for us. He had all the power, he had all the might to forsake us for an eternity, but instead, he was forsaken for us. He had the might, he had the power to create any reality, didn't he? He had the power and the might to create any reality, but he chose the one where you would be created, where you would be alive and breathing. You know, we've seen movies about this, but think about anything and everything that could have happened so that your parents never met. Think about anything and everything that could have happened so that your grandparents never met, and then trace it all the way back to Adam and Eve. Any little thing that could have happened so that you would not be here today. The reason why our God is able to say, before the foundations of the world, I knew you. Why is he able to say that? Before the foundations of the world, I knew you. The reason why he's able to say that is because he's saying, I'm going to commit all of my might. I'm going to commit all of my power to orchestrate human history in such a way where you would be here today, where you would be here, where you would be alive, where you would be living, where you would know God and experience him. He had the power to create any reality, didn't he? He had the power to write any story, story, but he chose to write the story in which he would send his son to die for you. He didn't have to write that story. But he chose to write the story that would cost him everything. Why? So that you would know, so that we would know without a shadow of a doubt that we have a God in heaven who is not only almighty and powerful, but he cares. He cares for you deeply. And so as Peter says, let's humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, casting all of our anxieties upon him because he cares for us. He cares for us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this truth. We thank you for the cross. Father, we confess that we are a people filled with all sorts of anxieties, filled with all sorts of worries, 
and fears and we thank you that we have a God in heaven that we could approach boldly and cast all of our anxieties upon you. Father, as we look at the cross, we see that you are a God who is willing and who is able to bear the burden of all of our sins. And so we are sure that you are a God who is willing and who is able to bear the burden of all of our anxieties, all of our worries, all of our fears. God, if you are willing to bear the burden of all of our sins, we can be sure that you are willing and able to bear the burden of all of our anxieties and worries. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Father, help us over and over and over again to look upon the cross and in it see your power and see your care over us and help us to cast all of our anxieties upon you. Let us be a people that are set free. Let us be a people that have you as our one thing. In Jesus' name we pray.